0: Captain, I'm picking up disturbing signals from the sensor array. It's called a cascading biogenic pulse. Captain, depending on its radiant intensity, it could engulf an entire ship. A weapon of that immensity can only have one purpose, the destruction of Earth. They must not be allowed to use it. Our hands, battle stations.
1: We are headed for Federation space at maximum warp speed.
0: Full power to shields, Mr. Hill. I'm on it. Captain, we are being hailed. Put it up on the screen. This is the Starship Dankowski. State your name and purpose.
2: First of all, I'm not on a screen. I'm standing here in the doorway looking at you idiots. Do you have any idea how stupid you look?
3: And you scan this life form?
2: I, Captain. No, nobody's scanning me. This has got to stop. You guys are in your mid 20s and you're still going to comic cons and sci fi conventions and dressing up in costumes from a series that hasn't even existed for years.
0: You know, it's a shame that you feel that way. We're heading to a convention that's heavy on cosplay.
2: Wait, 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 wait a second. Like hot chicks and Sailor Moon costumes? Exactly. Why didn't you say so? Where do you need me?
0: Ensign Wolf, arm um, photon torpedoes.
2: Aye, Captain.
0: I am detecting a hull breach on deck 3.
2: We might not get out of this one alive, but meanwhile, here's a show about how Comic-Cons and sci-fi nerd culture took over the mainstream. And now he wore his Invisible Girl costume for the fourth straight year, Colin McEnroe.
3: Yeah, I wear my Invisible Girl costume, and then people don't notice me. Uh, It's one of the sort of paradoxes and ironies of going to Comic-Con. All right, so um, I'm going to tell you who's here. It's been an exciting day already. So exciting, and I have to do like a little fourth wall thing, so exciting that... Um, we failed to flip the computer over into this room. This sounds like part of the Star Trek sketch that you just heard, but it's not. Uh, So somebody could flip the computer um, over into this uh, studio that we're in right now. That would be great, because I can see whether one of the guests is here. In studio, though, this has been very exciting already. Uh, John Cantor and Eric Gunther are here. Uh, They are members of Connecticut Ghostbusters. It's a nonprofit charity and uh, costuming group servicing Hartford, New Haven, and Fairfield Counties. We're going to tell you all about them, but they will be at the Hartford Comic-Con this weekend. We're also going to have to explain kind of what a Comic-Con is, is for some of you. So Everybody's operating at different level, levels of expertise on this, but some of our listeners will be not that familiar with even what a Comic-Con is. But anyway, they are here in full Ghostbusters regalia, proton packs, PKE meters, the whole thing. And I've been walking them around the building, uh, including two parts of this building that are, we might call, fantasy-impaired. Uh, executive suites where people just don't get into this stuff that much. And I'm sure I'm going to be written up, as usual, by HR. But anyway, Matthew Smith is here with us. He's a professor of communications at Wittenberg University in Springfield, Ohio. Each summer, he teaches a, a summer field study course where he takes students across the country to explore these Comic-Cons. Well, there's one Comic-Con in particular, Comic-Con International in San Diego. His latest book is a collection of the best of his projects from this program, and it's called It happens at Comic-Con. Um, and we're going to be talking in just a second to, uh, to Kari Andrews, uh, an award-winning comic book writer and artist. His most recent work includes the bestsellers Iron Fist, The Living Weapon, and Spider-Man Rain, both from Marvel Comics. So um, there's, there's so much that we want to uh, say. We should, I should say that Kari Andrews is going to be in Hartford this weekend at, at Comic-Con with the Ghostbusters guys. But Matthew Smith, I'm going to start with you. Maybe the first thing you need to do is explain... And we should also say we're going to talk a little bit about Comic Cons today, but in a larger sense, we are going to talk about the way in which what used to be um, a kind of exiled culture, a marginalized culture of of fans, of comic books and and sci-fi and a whole bunch of interrelated subgenres, how that group of people came to effectively dominate a lot of mainstream culture, so much so that when I was growing up and I was into comic books, if you were really into comic books, it meant probably that no one would date you. Now, if you go on a date, it actually is to some kind of comic book or fantasy product, especially during the summer. You're going to see one of these movies probably. Um, but, so we'll be talking a lot about that and how that happened and why, what that means. But Matthew Smith, maybe you could begin, for people who've never been to a Comic-Con, and I have, and it's a very difficult, difficult thing to describe and characterize, but, but give us a, a thumbnail.
0: Thanks, Colin. I I think the key to understanding cons is it is a social gathering. It is an opportunity for people who are coming out from those fringes that you spoke of to gather together, to find community with one another. And with any community, you have at the very heart of it communication. And so a lot of what goes on at cons is an opportunity for people to interact with one another, to exchange ideas, to celebrate the culture that they love and appreciate, um, to engage in symbolic exchanges Uh, Sometimes that's visual, sometimes that's vocal, Uh, oftentimes it's economical. Um, They exchange products and keepsakes and content with one another and so cons start to look a little bit like a swap meet in some ways but they're more than that because at the heart of it is this coming together of people who wouldn't otherwise be able to interact with someone who shared their interest, who shared their passion. the other, one of the big things that does happen in Comic-Cons is that people do dress
3: up. Um, and, I mean, not everybody dresses up, but to a substantial degree, people dress up. And, for example, um, Matthew Smith, I would imagine this year, if we went to a bunch of Comic-Cons, Westeros would be a bigger theme than it's been in the past. Uh, you know, when something like Game of Thrones comes along, the books aren't new, but the HBO series is. Uh, I'm assuming if I go to Comic-Con Hartford uh, this uh, summer, this weekend, I'm going to see some Lannisters.
0: I would absolutely bet on it. Um, I think that oftentimes you see the cosplay community reflecting what is significant in the culture at any given moment. And the fact that something like Game of Thrones is now sort of peaking in terms of wider acceptance, uh, the cosplay community will interpret that and feed it back to us in their visual displays. And so they'll make it clear to us that that is significant, that is popular right now. Although the community is also very dedicated to notions of honoring things that they love from the past. And so you will see many folks like the Ghostbusters or um, one of my all-time favorite cosplayers was a young woman who had dressed like the comic rendition of Gwen Stacy uh, before she was resurrected in the uh, last two Marvel movies about uh, Spider-Man. She just had a subtle outfit that looked like 60 Go-Go's outfit. And uh, if you knew the comics, you knew it was Gwen Stacy. Uh, so I think there's both uh, ends of this being represented, both those who are contemporary and those who are honoring things they love from the past.
3: Oh, You know, I, I want to—there's um, a really interesting sort of juncture here, and maybe it's a good moment to explore it. So uh, I'm going to turn to John Cantor and Eric Gunther for just a second, and, and I just did walk them around this building, uh, both on this floor uh, where we are and, and up on the sixth floor where many of the management and executive people here are. And so— um, John Cantor, one of the things that happened uh, on our trip is that some people stared at you in complete perplexity. And then, you know, by the time we were through walking around the sixth floor, we had a little comet tail of three or four people who just, you know, had to follow you guys, knew absolutely everything, knew the right things to say, knew it was a PKE meter, knew all that kind of stuff, knew we have we have mass hysteria right now, dogs and cats living together. Um, and so and I think that sort of points to something, which is that whenever you do something like this, there are people who get it and are very much dyed in the wool about it? People who have kind of a passing, vague acquaintance with it, and people who have no clue. But I'm assuming if you go to a comic con, the thing—can you give me kind of a sense of if you guys walk in, what what gets said to you?
1: It's mostly just um, a array of you know, mismatched movie quotes from across. Because no one, <laughs> unless you really know the movie, I mean, no one's re- no one's going to fully get all the quotes all the time like most of us Ghostbuster nerds do. Mm-hmm. And usually throughout, I've had people come up to me at Comic-Cons. I've had a policeman on duty come up to me at Comic-Con and offer me money for my pack on the spot saying how, you know, telling me the story of how he was, you know, he saw the movie when he was like, when he was five with his grandmother in the movie theaters and, you know, he had all the toys and the the Mattel product line and how he was just so excited to see someone in a full Ghostbusters costume that wasn't, that didn't come out of a Halloween
3: store. Yeah, we should say you guys made uh, a a lot of your gear here and- And that's an interesting thing, too, Eric, which I think you were the one telling me out in the parking lot, Mm -hmm. that some of this gear is kind of based on – I mean, the the photon pack or the proton pack or whatever it is, it's based on something, right?
4: Yeah, they're actually based off of parts of nuclear accelerators. Um, They actually – Dan Aykroyd was – actually researched some of it before he made the movie. And then when they came to develop some of the packs, they incorporated some of that engineering into when they made the packs. Um, And it's just like how much time and money
3: did you spend making these packs? I mean, they look – elaborate i mean they're and they light up and they do stuff
4: one of these packs probably costs around two thousand dollars to mm-hmm. be as movie accurate as you can get it with all welded aluminum parts and a fiberglass shell um full lights and sound um and it takes about three to four months to kind of build it if you have everything in hand
3: um you know and a thing happened as we were walking into the building that i think is kind of interesting uh and um and and, uh, and i think it actually points to something too which was we got up to the front desk Betsy and Betsy doesn't know the story yet. And, and Alan doesn't know the story yet. We got up to the front desk and the young woman at the front desk looked at them and she said, Well, are they real Ghostbusters? Um, and I looked at her and I said, Well, of course they're real ghostbusters. And she said, Well, I mean their equipment looks like, you know, like it's real ghost they're real ghostbusters. And I don't know. I mean, John, are you able to unpack that question? Or is or is it just that there is a sense that that there's something real? Oh, I can definitely pack that question.
1: <laughs> Uh, With cosplaying costuming in general, you know, there's a big involvement of the suspension of disbelief Mm -hmm. where if – depending on how accurate your costume is, you know, for us, for example, we have – we do the Boston St. Patrick's Day Parade event every year since we've started, which is, you know, three years running and now. And every year it's – we always call it, you know, it's our group primary. It's our first event for the year and it's always been such a strong start for us because – during that event is probably the biggest time we'll get all the, you know, just where the, the lines blur a little bit and the curtain sort of fades. And you have to be able to ground yourself and remember that this is just a costume. I'm just wearing 30 pounds of fiberglass and steel. And <laughs> that, you know, I'm going to be going to the hotel room in 35 minutes and my feet are going to be dead.
0: Um, and for Yeah. Go ahead. Continue. yeah.
1: And for most of the crowd, you know, this year especially, we had people coming up to us during the parade and saying, you know, thank you so much for showing up to the parade today. We really appreciate your service to the greater Boston community and state at large. Thank you for doing what you're doing and serving us, the people of Boston. (laughs) And I was – it still blows my mind to this day how someone could look at us, see, you know, 40 or 50 Ghostbusters in a car and think, oh, my God, these guys are real.
3: But I think—and actually, there's a movie that completely, I think, encapsulates this. And I'm almost surprised at how many people haven't seen it because I really think it's brilliant. It's a movie called Galaxy Quest. And I'm going to just quickly set the stage for you. Um uh, Tim Allen uh, and Sigourney Weaver and some other people play this group of actors who were on a show very much like Star Trek and now the show's off the air and they're going to a lot of conventions, which they don't really particularly enjoy doing. Some of them enjoy it less than others. but uh, And Alan Rickman is this uh, kind of washed-out Shakespearean actor who's played a role on this show and they're they're all kind of tired of it. Um, and, and what they don't know is that there is a civilization uh, many, many, many uh, galaxies away that has been watching this series and thinks it's all real and all Ultimately recruits them uh, to, to to help with with an interplanetary emergency that they're having. Uh, but anyway, at one point, Tim Allen has to uh, contact one of these, and I will use a somewhat pejorative word here, fanboys uh, that he's been who've been coming to these conventions because they they actually know the answers to some of these questions. Justin Long plays uh, this fanboy, and so uh, I think what we're going to hear here is um, is Tim Allen contacting this fanboy because he actually needs detailed answers to a certain question. Hello.
4: Anybody there? Hello.
5: Hello. Got him. Listen to me. this is Jason Nesmith. I play Commander Peter Quincy Taggart of NSEA Protector. We accidentally traded Voxes the other day when we bumped into each other. Oh. Oh, Commander, I see. Okay. What's your name, son? Brandon? Brandon, I remember you from the convention, right? You asked all those little technical questions about the ship and I was a little short with you.
6: Yes, yes, I I know, Commander, and, uh... I actually wanna... just wanted to tell you that I, I thought a lot about what you said. It's okay, now listen. But, but, I want you to know that I'm not a complete brain case, okay? I understand completely that it's just a TV show. Just, oh, hold on. I know there's no Wait a spear, Stop stop no for a second, joking. stop Wait. No ship.
5: It's all real. Oh my god, I knew it.
3: I knew it! I knew <laughs> it! You knew it. So, Matthew Smith, this has got to be something that you've encountered a little bit, too, uh, as you and your students explore the worlds of of Comic-Cons, that there is, uh, to use uh, the phrase that I think John used, a little blurring of the lines at times. There's something kind of inviting about the idea that it could be made in this um, protected space of a Comic-Con, anyway, a little bit more real?
0: Absolutely. I I think that the people who cosplay are finding a way to express themselves that otherwise they, they couldn't do on a daily basis. I mean, um, there, there is an opportunity in in the con to be fully yourself or fully in that role, and to have people appreciate you for that. Um, one of the things that I find most annoying about con um, isn't at the site itself; um, it's the local television newscasters who can't help but mock the people who play who cosplay during it. And I think. Oh. Don't you understand? These people are putting their heart and souls into this. And this is their one chance, their, their one time of the year where they really get to be appreciated for their talent, for their passion. And, and the newscasters are, are almost treating them like a carnival. And um, I, just, I find that offensive in many ways I, because I know these people, they really are passionate about what they're doing and their hearts are in the right place.
3: I want to come back to that idea, too. I think it's an important idea. I want to add to the conversation uh, Kari Andrews. As I said, an award-winning comic book writer and artist. His recent work includes the bestsellers Iron Fist, The Living Weapon, Spider-Man, Rain, uh, both for Marvel Comics. He's also the director of an upcoming movie, Cabin Fever, Patient Zero, which hits the theaters this summer. And he's coming to the Hartford Comic Con uh, this weekend where he will be given a hero's welcome, no doubt. Um, Kari Andrews, I know you've done things like drive 40 hours from Canada to get to San Diego. um, What To the comic-con there what what spurs you to do this what makes it worth uh that trip
6: well for me hi guys uh, how's it going for me that was my very first convention and i was a young art school student and i was intent and focused on to breaking into the industry so for me it was it was kind of a career it was a career decision and a quest for uh you know my future so I, i undertook that that torturous drive with no air conditioning driving through arizona at two in the morning um you know with my brother and another, another kid from art school.
3: And you never looked back. And, and, you know, you've listened to Matthew Smith describe a little bit of what a Comic-Con is like, or, and to John and Eric talking about the reception that they get at a Comic-Con. One thing we really haven't said is a Comic-Con also is the entertainment industry's trade show to a certain degree. They're, this is an opportunity for them, particularly the big one like San Diego, to roll out what is going to be a, a dominant tidal wave in mainstream culture, right?
6: It has become that way, yes. from the first show I went to, which was a long time ago, maybe 15 years or something like that, maybe longer, I'm not quite sure. It, the movies had just started to show up and blip up, and then uh, every year was more and more. And so these days you'll have mainstream sitcoms show up at San Diego. that have nothing to do with um, anything, but that they're there to make a presence and they're to try to find an audience and try to increase their viewership. And it really is like has become a celebration of pop culture as a whole. Not just fantasy, not just comic books, not just sci fi, but just pop culture itself. It's this movement and a market in a marketing tool that yes, studios and video games or toy makers use to kind of like reach their consumers.
3: Uh, We're going to come up on a a break here. I do want to invite people to call in. We're live here in the afternoon. First of all, you may tweet us at WNPR. Colin, Greg Hill's waiting to tweet back at you. Uh, You may also uh, call the show, particularly if you've watched this transition, the transition of this kind of culture coming to a certain degree out of the shadows and the margins into the mainstream. Or if you're somebody who goes to Comic-Con and reaps a certain reward from it, 860-275-7266 is the number to call. 860-275-7266. We'll be back with more of Kari and Matthew and the Ghostbusters after this.
6: Lee. Anime, I want to play with Felicia Day. Now let's cosplay.
2: Princess peace, the one ring. Comic-Con is everything. Fanboys hanging out. All that Kate hanging out. With Katie, my lady. Yeah.
6: How about an autograph, maybe? Uh-huh. Wish We could get it on, because you represent
2: Comic-Con.
6: Comic-Con, girls, we're in.
3: Okay, I want to um, focus a little bit on something that Matthew Smith said uh, a few seconds ago about people being mean. Um, and, and newscasters uh, being mean. Um, we're talking about Comic-Cons. We're also talking about sort of the culture that flows together. This confluence that you get at Comic-Cons. That is comic book culture, sci-fi culture, cosplay culture if you know what that means. Video game culture. A whole bunch of things kind of come together. Uh, and as Kari Andrews was saying, now it's just things that aren't, don't even remotely fit into any of those subgenres. just plunk themselves down at the big Comic-Cons uh, just to get all those eyeballs. So with us are John Cantor and Eric Gunther, they are the members of the Connecticut Ghostbusters. Uh, We'll tell you more about them but they're a nonprofit charity and costuming group they're here in full Ghostbusters regalia Matthew Smith is a professor of communication at Wittenberg University in Springfield Ohio. Each summer he teaches a field study course where he takes students to the massive Comic Con International in San Diego Kari Andrews is an award winning comic book writer and artist uh, and he's going to be at the Comic Con in Hartford this weekend as are John and Eric. Uh, We're both taking your phone calls at 860-275 7266. So um, I should have pinpointed the year for this, but quite a few years ago. First of all, we should say before there were comic cons, there were sci-fi conventions, there were Star Trek conventions, there were there were conventions for comic book collectors. They were nothing like what Comic Con is like now, right now, and they were balkanized, they were segmented. Uh, there wasn't uh, a whole lot of overlap. But the Star Trek convention got a certain kind of reputation, and William Shatner appearing on Saturday Night Live. This is like a couple of decades ago now, I think, or maybe fifteen years ago. Um, did his own little uh, satire, and I think. It Kind of goes to the point that Matthew Smith was making about being mean. So here's William Shatner on Saturday Night Live.
5: You know, before I, I answer any more questions, there's something I wanted to say. I, I Having received all your letters over the years, and, and, and I've spoken to many of you, and some of you have traveled, you know, hundreds of miles you know, to be here, I'd just like to say, get a life, will you, people? I mean, I mean. I mean for, for crying out loud it's, it's just a TV show <laughs> I mean look at you look at the way you're dressed you, 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 you've turned an enjoyable little job that I did as a lark for a few uh, years into a colossal waste of time I mean, I mean how old are you people what have you done with yourselves you you, you must be almost 30 have you, have you ever kissed a girl I, I didn't think so there's, there's a whole world out there When I was your age, I didn't watch television. I lived. So move out of your parents' basement. And get your own apartments and grow the hell up. I mean, it's just a TV show, Dan, and it's just a TV show.
3: Uh, you can tell that this is 15 or 20 minute, twenty years out of date because living in your parents' basement no longer has a stigma attached to it. It's just an economic reality. But, you know, Matthew Smith, that is mean. And, and it was funny at the time, but I remember at the time that a lot of fans of the show, the kind of people who did go to those conventions, felt very violated by that, too. Um, and, and I would have assumed... Uh, prior to getting ready for this show, that that kind of thing had gone the way of the Dodo, that everybody kind of uh, accepts now that that this is mainstream culture. But you've had uh, experiments where you're, one of your students dressed up uh, as, as a comic book character and just sort of walked around in the world, right, just to see how people would react?
0: Yeah. One of my really talented students, his name was Kane Anderson, and, and he did an experiment where he dressed in an outfit of Mr. Incredible from the Incredible series from Disney. And uh, Kane is a handsome man, but he is larger than the character in the film. And so uh, he created quite a striking figure as a uh, a somewhat uh, beefy Mr. Incredible. Um, Be that as it may, you know, people would glom onto him. They would attract it to him. They would come up and want to get their picture taken with him. But what um, Kane didn't realize at the time is that there were people taking his picture, posting it online, and um, mocking his appearance, mocking his failed attempt at trying to recreate the character uh, and really being very harsh about his genuine attempt to try and experiment with cosplay. And, um, you know, I, I think that that kind of of, of, of attack um, just is, is unwarranted, but it is not uncommon. I think a lot of people look at the uh, cosplay community as a fringe and are not yet ready to bring them in despite the fact that, they do wonderful work, uh, charitable work. They provide wonderful structure for people who are involved in the cosplay. Uh, but, yeah, there's still that distance socially that is is evident in our culture.
3: And Kari Andrews, does that— Does that divide extend to the cultural products themselves? I mean, this summer, everybody's going to see Godzilla and the Spider-Man movie and the latest Captain America movie and the latest X-Men movie. And it's, you know, a much, much huger demographic than the kinds of people who go to Comic-Con. But I I guess I'm asking is, is that mass audience just sort of dating comic book culture on the side but not really necessarily willing to marry comic book culture or maybe even go out in public with comic book culture?
6: Well, it's interesting. I mean, let's be honest. I am a, I am a nerd. I grew up a nerd, but I was, I am a good-looking guy, you know, and, and whatever. Um, nerds have a lot of self-hate and self-loathing. Um, and when you go to a show, the cool thing about it is that everyone is just allowed to be themselves, and that a lot of that stuff disappears into the into the into, into the vapors and and goes away. And it's a communal experience of basically fun and excitement and everyone's happy to look around but it's fun to look at cosplayers and cosplayers enjoy the intention they're basically hijacking the cultural love for a character and wearing that love for a day you know they can be spider-man for a day and get the kind of attention that a real spider-man might get for the day and you know i don't know maybe you know sometimes it comes with like maybe a news anchor making fun of them but it's not i don't even know if it's I don't even know if the spirit of that is necessarily so mean these days. It's always fun to watch people dress up, and if they look a little weird doing it, it's just fun. Even like other cosplayers enjoy it. So I know I don't know. I don't know if we should be so so protective of, of the cosplaying communities because you know, they, they I think they enjoy the attention. It's fun for everyone, and there's always bullies, but even nerds can be bullies. Go to any internet <laughs> forum and look what people, you know, look how people talk to each other. And there's also this movement of like fake nerds. Where people accuse people of being, you know, uh, wearing the wearing the tropes of nerddom to get girls and weird things like that. So you know, it's a complicated mess. But the cool thing about a show and the Hartford Comic Con or whatever, it's it's great for the families. It's great for everyone. It's just a fun time with like good kind of like a good communal uh,
3: atmosphere. I mean, But, you know, I want to explore the transition that has happened. And and I do think that there has been an incredible transition over the course of 20 years. I I know because in, like, 1970 or 71, I was a comic book nerd. And it just wasn't, in any sense, a cool thing to be. It wasn't even anything you could talk to anybody about because they almost literally didn't know who Spider-Man was. I know how hard that is to conceive of. And, you know, Eric Gunther, I think the Ghostbusters movie, if I had a list seven or eight things that were kind of game changers. I would put the Ghostbusters movie in there because it 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 represented kind of a redefinition of a certain kind of nerd culture. Do you do you know what I'm talking about?
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they 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 came in, you know, they had a theory about what they were doing and everyone kind of looked at them funny, but yet they continued on what they believed was right. And, you know, it's not like you can just go down to the store and go buy a proton pack, so they had to develop their own technology and build their own devices, and throughout the movie you see them kind of experimenting with it. And then even when they went to their first job, they had no idea if it was going to work or not, but they just winged it anyway.
3: And, and I mean, John Kater uh, also, the movie is kind of one gigantic up yours at the rest of authority, right? Everybody else who has got it wrong. The guy from the EPA... Who's actually a TV news reporter in all the Die Hard movies, which may be uh, germane to Matthew Smith's uh, earlier point, but the guy from the EPA is wrong, the mayor's wrong, the, the Roman Catholic Cardinal's wrong, um, and these ki- these guys who are nerds, but led by one cool insouciant nerd, are right. And, and there is, I mean, probably as you go a lot around, even in the outfit that you're wearing now, you get that reaction too, right? You guys in that context, in that rejection of authority context are kind of heroes or no you're not kind of heroes you are heroes yeah mostly
1: for at least for the ghostbusters you know we look at as far as you know from a cosplay point of view as far as you know from getting into character as you know we're the last resort we're the guys who do the nastiest jobs that the epa the you know the police and all the cleanup crews won't do and when the town goes to you know the pit who are you going to call
3: Right. And the, the movie is a fusion of a bunch of things. It is a fusion of nerd science geek culture, uh, you know, people who who know a lot of weird language and terminology. In fact, let's kind of give people kind of a reminder of this. This is my absolute favorite favorite scene uh, from the movie. Rick Moranis plays an accountant who's been uh, possessed by some Sumerian revenant divinity or, or something. Uh, and he's being <laughs> examined by the late Harold Ramis. Uh, and uh, here's what he's got to say.
5: Vince, you said before you were waiting for a sign. What sign are you waiting for? Gozer the Traveler. He will come in one of the pre-chosen forms. During the rectification of the Valdrani, the Traveler came as a large and moving torb. Then, during the third reconciliation of the last of the Mechentrick supplicants, they chose a new form for him, that of a giant slore. Many Shubs and Zools knew what it was to be roasted in the depths of the slore that day, I can tell you.
3: So this is a fusion of first of all, you have this highly reticulated esoteric language, you know, terminology that's being used, which which could be just as easily somebody speaking Klingon or Navi or whatever they speak in Avatar. You know, you have you have the coolness of the Saturday Night Live ethos embodied by by Dan Aykroyd uh, and Bill Murray. Um, You have a kind of awareness also of the humorousness of, of all that. And Matthew Smith. Um, I'm going to address this one to you, although I, I'd love to hear Kari Andrews on it as well. It seems to me that one of the things that might have been a turning point for this entire culture is what you in academia would call metacognition or at least a kind of metatheatrical awareness suddenly of comic book culture of itself and of the fact that it's incredibly inviting but also a little bit funny. I mean, I think if we think very hard, we can come up with moments where comic book culture became kind of aware of itself
0: in a way that made it hipper and more inviting. Absolutely. I I think what happens is when you begin to own whatever it is that people are putting you down for or mocking you for or looking down on you for and can twist it around in a way that you can control it, you can spin it, it gives you a certain amount of power back that you didn't have before. And if you can exercise that power, if you can do it creatively and constructively, if you can demonstrate, hey, I can laugh at myself – um, you begin to win over converts you begin to win over fans who go oh i see they're 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 not so uptight they're not so serious that they don't understand that what they're doing is outside of what society deems to be the mainstream
3: and kari andrews you know um I I think another thing that happened, and just to sort of pursue that point a little bit, um, early on in in the the rise of Marvel comics, somewhere in the first 10 issues of The Amazing Spider-Man, there was a moment at which he literally swung through the window of a psychiatrist's office, spun his web around the psychiatrist, and, and insisted on having a session with the psychiatrist about why he would be doing such a thing, you know, why anybody would be putting on a costume, possibly subjecting himself to the enmity of the local newspaper and God knows what else, in order to help people who sometimes weren 't even all that grateful in anyway, what kind of person does this and to me, that rep- i mean the 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 idea of a comic book character from the d c comic book universe asking such a, a meta kind of question about himself was unthinkable uh, and, and Marvel, I feel like even in that moment opened up a door that that people like you have been walking through ever since
6: yeah definitely marvel the Marvel comics were a turning point in um, kind of the way superheroes were represented, I think, as a reflection of you know the current cultural state. Whereas DC comics were more they were more tied to the, the past idea of what people were and how people thought. And people didn't talk about divorce or problems, but in Marvel comics, it was all about problems and things like divorce. I mean, I think the, for me, as a creator of comics, the one idea that I constantly reinvestigate is the idea of a lot of superheroes wear masks and hide their identity, but in doing so, they're actually revealing their true identity, their inner identity, their soul, you know, to people. So you can, like, hide this person that you present to yourself publicly and expose yourself as you are this hero, and you are someone who, like, you know, strives for goodness and tries to help people, regardless of people may see you as a weak, you know, photographer working for a news agency and beat you up in high school, but but really you're a hero inside. And that's what I love about comic books is, like, I find mostly it's kind of an inspirational and uh, you know um, aesthetic where it's about striving towards something greater than than what people perceive you to be.
3: I think that's a great point. I'll pursue that with you just a little bit too. Jules Pfeiffer, many years ago, writing an essay about comic book heroes, explored that question. Although he he invited a certain, or he set up a kind of dichotomy. He said, you know, it, it does vary from from hero to hero that, for example, um, in the case of Batman, uh, Bruce Wayne is the reality. Batman is the disguise. In the case of Superman, of course, Superman is the reality. He disguises himself as Clark Kent. Um, and, and, you know, you, you pass through a lot of iterations since then. Uh, but, I mean, I think a great example, particularly because they're in the movie theaters right now, are the X-Men, who have always been mutants, uh, but only when they are allowed to be X-Men, only when they are allowed, you know, this, I mean, talk about this great fantasy, this school that you're going to go to where you can finally be yourself, as opposed to what most schools do, which is to beat yourself out of you as much as possible. Here's a school where you can finally be yourself, and it turns out that's what you are, right?
6: Yeah, I mean, I went to school for quote-unquote gifted kids, and it felt, <laughs> it felt very much like the X-Men uh, you know, we were all kind of a little nerdier, and there wasn't quite so many jocks, and there wasn't quite so many cool kids. But you know, uh, we were we were encouraged to be our, ourselves, uh, and I, and there is that in society, especially amongst minorities like perhaps the gay population or, or whoever that has been, you know, historically encouraged to hide themselves from mainstream society, um, and and I think that's. Why someone like brian singer is so attracted to the extra franchises because it encourages you know social classes like that to just own and celebrate the, themselves and not and not hide away in the shadows anymore so that's probably even a generation beyond the spider-man interpretation of a hero where it's not even hiding your hiding yourself with a mask to reveal your inner personality your inner soul it's just wearing your inner soul publicly
3: you know, I'm wondering, Matthew Smith, that there's another. I mean, there are other watershed moments, but to, to me, another watershed moment, and this is more within the realm of artistic legitimacy and 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 changing the the perimeter of, of what is the mainstream. I think it came in 2009. In fact, if we could get the um, uh, the Kevin Klein Oscar speech ready. So, in 2009, uh, the Dark Knight uh, was. I mean, I think everybody kind of understood that this was a kind of significant movie in a lot of ways, and it. It had a a mind-blowing performance. Even even if Heath Ledger hadn't died that year, um, everybody would have understood that this was a a performance as the Joker that leapt off the screen. So here's uh, Kevin Kline giving uh, Heath Ledger uh, posthumously that that Oscar.
5: In a year of striking film images, perhaps the most unforgettable was that of a man with his face smeared in clown makeup, gleefully sticking his head out of a speeding car, relishing the night wind, and reveling in the chaos he has unleashed on the streets of Gotham City. Menacing, mercurial, droll, and diabolical, Heath Ledger, as the Joker in the Dark Knight, kept us all on edge, anxious to see what act of appalling mischief he might commit next. With this bravura performance, as well as with a wide range of other roles to which he put his unique signature, Heath Ledger has left us an original and enduring legacy.
3: You know, Matthew Smith, I think you could argue that with 3 billion people or whatever the worldwide audience of the Oscars is watching, comic books had never really been talked about that way with such a mass audience in such uh, a high profile and prestigious venue and, and other things happened as a result of that. I think it really is the main reason that the Oscar best picture field splintered out in or expanded out into to nine or 10 nominees. Cause there was kind of a sense that if there were only five nominees, you couldn't take a film like the dark Knight and insist that it was, it was one of the best pictures of the year, even if it was, because of some kind of stigma that comic book culture had—that it didn't deserve to be taken quite that seriously—but I feel like as though right around then, and in making that adjustment, there was an acknowledgement about what comic book culture was becoming.
0: I agree with you, and and I think you know the the power of the characters that uh, say uh, Springer created with uh, the Joker in 1940. There's such a depth to be mined there, and and yes, Heath Ledger brought his talents to doing that, but. The reality is, you know, comics are incredibly um, uh, fertile territory for exploration, and I think that's why we're seeing multiple renditions of Spider-Man in the theaters. While we're seeing even uh, characters as minor as the Agents of Shield now becoming the feature uh, presenters or players in a television series, you know, there's a lot there that's worth mining, and uh, people are cluing into that. But the the acknowledgement from the establishment is always going to be delayed because the establishment is always a generation older than the people who are making uh, the art. So, uh, you know, for the Academy to come around and actually reward comic book films, we're going to have to wait 10, 15 years to the people who are making comic book films are the ones who are giving out the awards.
3: All right. I want to grab one call here, then we're going to go to a break. Um, Here's uh, Andrew calling from New Haven. Hi, Andrew.
7: Hi, Colin. How are you today? Good. Uh, I really enjoy your program. I just wanted to comment on... Uh, the story your guest told earlier about one of his students who dressed up as Mr. Incredible, and he was a little overweight, and he I guess he got made fun of a little bit. Um, I don't really see the uh, the tragedy with that. I mean, like your guest said earlier, you know these people are looking for attention. They're trying to get a reaction from people, and I don't I don't think it's such a big deal that he got made fun of, especially as a as an overweight person dressed as Mr. Incredible. It kind of reminds me of, you know, in Little League today, everybody gets a trophy. You know, what's the point? It's like society has become so soft, you know?
3: Well, Andrew, your your sang-froid alarms me here. But uh, let me go back to Matthew Smith about that. I think it's more the tone that you were talking about. Yes, obviously, your student was doing this partly a- as an experiment to see what kind of reactions he might get, and and therefore would have a, a scholarly interest in what all those reactions were. But but I guess it might be sort of the the tone of the kinds of things that were cropping up on social media that was more the more not, not just disparagement, but a certain kind of disparagement.
0: Yeah. You know, the the reaction of people who are physically present was so positive and so warm and receptive that I think the internet comments stood out in such stark contrast. Um, You know, not being being able to confront him physically, you know, not being able to come up to him and say, that was a really bad choice, uh, but feeling he could do that on a worldwide stage. um, I think that's the qualitative difference there, that, you know, someone feels empowered when they're away from uh, physical confrontation, but not willing to make that same kind of critique in person.
3: when you Ghostbusters want to react to what Andrew was saying. We saw you shaking your heads. Yeah, that's always an interesting topic of discussion
1: in the cosplay community because, you know, as an overweight fellow myself, it's not wholly about the attention you garner from dressing up as your favorite comic book character or, in, or in my case, a favorite movie character. Most of what cosplayers act around these days are more of showing off their skills as a builder and to a very very smaller point i guess you could say you know maybe a little attention you're looking more for recognition you know for instance you know my ghostbuster kit it took me a year and a half to completely find all of the parts you know to do the research to you know look upon reams and reams of reference photos to be able to you know make this costume and to say that you know that someone only does that to garner your you know 15 seconds of fame in a comic convention is you know it sort of demeans the effort and meaning that someone can put into a build of this type. Especially with, you know, more cosplayers who do, you know, most – actually most of the ones you will see at, you know, Hartford Comic Con like, you know, Riddle and uh, Bethany Matic where they put a lot of effort in, you know. These are seamstresses that – their work blows my mind on a daily basis seeing the kind of, you know, time and skill that they use to put towards these costumes. And that goes for, you know, a lot of the cosplay community as well. I mean some of the skill out there is, you know, you wonder why these people don't work on the movies themselves. Both me and Eric, you know, we've both met Dan Aykroyd and Ernie Hudson. And each time, you know, we've met, you know, these these were the guys in the suits. Mm -hmm. And they look at us and say, man, these look better than the ones we had when we (laughs) made the movie. And, you know, to get that kind of reaction from the guy who wore it, you know, that's really what you go for.
3: The I mean, and Eric, I, I think another thing, just to sort of piggyback on something that John just said too, is um, one distinction between the Ghostbusters and comic book heroes or superheroes. Superheroes usually are kind of ripped, you know. I mean, no matter whatever kind of other kind of mutant problems they have, or you know, they're always kind of ripped and, and have these kind of impossible to achieve uh, workout bodies, uh, impossible to achieve without either steroids or gamma rays, but part of the you know i said the ghostbusters were a confluence they are the confluence of a lot of stuff they're science nerds they're saturday night live comedians but they're also based on the guys who come to your house from for terminix or you know and they're the guys who come to your house in a panel truck uh, for some kind of problem you're having at the house and as a result they kind of weren't ripped they were they were a link between regular guys uh and that whole world of sci-fi and fantasy
4: hmm. and you know even in the second movie there is a part where uh uh Finkman says, "Suck on the guts, guys. We're the Ghostbusters." You know that, that kind of brings it home to show you, hey, we're not in shape. And then if you look at Egon, he's the, you know, the skinny guy, the the, the dorky guy, you know, out of the group. And then he got raised like the mechanic, so he's got a little bit of a beer gut. Finkman, um, you know, he's just bald. That's the, only- <laughs> yeah. but they're you know they're all normal guys. There's nothing really super about him except for the fact that they're willing to put themselves out there and use their technology for the greater good of humankind.
3: And that's what we're all about here we have to take a quick break here we're gonna have a short segment uh, time is flying by here short segment when we get back all of our guests will still be with us no doubt
2: I'll be there with my costume on. the x-men aren't real you mean i slept with a mutant for no reason betsy Kaplan and i produced today's show but that mostly involved getting out of the way of wnpr crockfellow and auxiliary x-man alan Yu, who conceived and executed it alan patrick scahill and greg hill appeared in the intro and greg tweets for us at wnpr colin katie talarski is our executive producer the part of bill curry was played by adam west For articles, show pages, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff and their Legend of Zelda costumes, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, authors Luann Rice and David Handler. And now... Back to Colin, and not
3: insignificantly, by the way, uh, tomorrow uh, one of the authors. One of the reasons our, our authors tomorrow are going to be in a New York studio is because Comic Con is so incredibly successful that now people are trying to do it with other things, especially books. So right now at the Javits Center there is a book expo that is much closer in style and spirit to Comic Con than anything ever, ever has been in the past. Um, and you know, with that in mind, our, our time is is fleeting here. But but, Carrie Andrews, I want to ask you a couple of more questions about about. Well, first of all, about the field you're in, as an award-winning comic book writer and artist, you know this was years ago a field that, once again, even the, for the creators, was they were a little bit marginalized. If you go back far enough, it's like studying the early R and B groups, uh, you know, in the 1950s, who were basically sort of ripped off by, by you know, music publishers and didn't get any royalties and got screwed in every possible way. The early comic book creators were kind of like that, right?
6: Yeah, not just the early comic book creators, recent comic book creators. The comic book industry has always been kind of a ragtag, low-rent industry. There hasn't really, even now, there's not a lot of money in the comic books themselves. It's all from movies and television. So it's always attracted kind of this kind of like, um, you know, a very small business mentality of people just kind of like muddling their way through and not not having proper contracts and et cetera. And so you end up with someone like Jack Kirby who... You know, co-created the Fantastic Four and everyone else who doesn't see any profits from that, and his family is still embroiled in a legal dispute with Marvel over that. Or even like Dave Cockrum, who helped create the the new version of the X-Men, which is just you know re- making tons of money in theaters. He he you know he kind of t- died pretty poor and, and, and in ill health. And Steve Ditko, who co-created Spider-Man, there's just a there's a there's a there's like a, a, a path of dead bodies <laughs> like, you know from the time these characters were created until the time now when they're celebrated and uh, monetized by large corporations
3: well are things better for you right now in your generation i mean in terms of just sort of preserving whatever uh, status and royalties and, and things like that that come out of your work
6: things are a little better i mean at least there's an awareness now you know you know what you're getting into when you work for a company and you don't own these characters you you know you're part of a thing And you're donating your abilities to a thing, and you can. There's also opportunities to create your own works and protect them in a way that wasn't, you know, wasn't very. People didn't know how to do that or even think of it back in the day, because no one expected comic books to become the most important genre of mainstream uh, entertainment, you know. It's an interesting
3: thing. Yeah, And yet they have. And Matthew Smith, um, one thing that we haven't really said is these Comic-Cons in many cities um, are a huge spike for the convention business of that city in that year, right? These have become really big business and and very lucrative for certain people.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Comic-Con International in San Diego is actually the largest convention that they host at the convention center, and it represents tens of millions of dollars in profit for the uh, surrounding community as people come in and celebrate and rent hotel rooms and buy meals at restaurants and and pump up the local economy in significant ways. Uh,
3: We have Comic-Con coming in this weekend, and uh, three of our four guests are going to be there. John Cantor and Eric Gunther, the Connecticut Ghostbusters, will be there. Kari Andrews will be there as well. Um, And so um, I just want to, before we run out of time, just in case, I mean, first of all, I should say, it's really fun to walk around with John and Eric because everybody does love the Ghostbusters. Uh, And um, so how people can sort of rent you or something? I mean, how does that work?
4: Um, if they like to come to a charity event, that's what we prefer to do. We yeah. don't like to go to birthday parties to make money off of people. That's not where we're in that, this. Because that
3: happened to the real Ghostbusters yeah. in, in the beginning of the second movie.
4: Right? Yeah, we don't want He-Man getting yelled at us. So, you know, <laughs> um, you know we, we we like to make an appearance, you know, bring smiles to people's faces. I even have a tattoo on my arm and of the Ghostbusters. And when I'm at work, you know, some some people might say, hey, what is that right there? And I'll lift my shirt up. Everyone always gets a big smile on their face. So... Mm. We do it more for that, you know, to go out and see people, make people happy and to help even to bring more people to these charity events. Say, hey, I want to see these these guys gear looks pretty cool. I want to go see it. So that's what we like to do. So if I Google Connecticut Ghostbusters, I'll find you pretty fast. Oh, yeah. That's
3: probably the easiest way to do it. Kari um, Andrews, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, and and we, we only have a we have less than a minute left. But do you ever worry that the comic book side of Comic-Con and all this attending culture is going to get diminished and squeezed out that that people will forget that at the beginning of all this stuff, there's a comic book somewhere?
6: There, you know, there is, in my field, there is a certain segment that feels betrayed by Comic-Cons and left behind and, and marginalized by the, the larger uh, movies and TVs and celebrities and even cosplay to an extent. But for myself, I just view... I've, I grew up thinking of it as one thing. I didn't think of things segmented into different boxes when I was a kid. I didn't think of movies as different from comics, as different from toys. As different, it was one thing. And for myself... It's just one thing again, and it's nice to have like to bring in all those people, and all those people are going to interact not just with the celebrities or the cosplay kids, but like the comic books and the video games. It just and it celebrates this totality of stuff that I grew up loving and still love, and I think it's a healthy thing and I think it's good. One thing though, go to this show, bring some hand t- hand sanitizer because <laughs> you might get sick. Bring a camera, take pictures with the cosplay guys. It's really fun. If you get a headache, it means you need to drink water. If right. you're to it means you need to, drink, you need
3: to eat some food. Kari, so we got to go. Thanks the show. All right, we got to go. Thanks very much to everybody, especially to our crock fellow, Alan Yu, who pulled this whole thing together. Check WNPR.org later for more.
2: I'm Kyle and Wolf. Hey, Alan, I'm reading this Enterprise manual on anti gravity, and I can't put it down. You know, I don't appreciate that. <laughs> I didn't know that thing actually works.